You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Heard is a collaboration between the Hungry Dudes, Nick Drinks, and the Detroit Optimist Society. Each week, we interview industry professionals about issues related to food, beverage, and hospitality. Please take a moment to subscribe to Heard through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcasts. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com, like Herd Podcast on Facebook, and follow at Herd Podcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Herd. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm Joe Hakeem, and I'm garnishing drinks. Nick is here making drinks. I don't know if you can hear that. Nick, what are you making? Just a Manhattan. Simple, easy-peasy, Prohibition-esque. Figured it went with our theme today. Cool. Jason just walked in. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and our special guest is uh, Detroit Booze historian and barkeologist, which I think is probably the coolest title that I've heard in a long time. Mickey Lyons. Mickey, thank you for being with us. That's the first time I've heard Thanks that. That is pretty me. cool. Yeah. I, I, I need to get business cards. Not sure. like yeah. dog bark. No. Like bar. Barkeologist. Bar- yes. Okay. yes. Yeah, like bar- booze bar. Barkeologist. Bark. Barky. Barkeology. How else are we supposed to say it, man? Know. I don't know. <laughs> She's not like a, a study of the history of dog barks. That'd be weird. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Working on it. Yeah. Uh, okay, so. I have something special for you. You have something special for yes. me? Yes. So I went to lunch at uh, Eastar? Ishtar. Ishtar. Yeah. And, um, it's in Sterling Heights. They had, uh, it's a Persian place, yeah. Persian place. Okay. And I brought back some of my leftovers for Joe. <laughs> and I wanted Joe to have some of them. I, I don't know what. This, you, you know exactly, this is, you know exactly this what is, it is. M- Oh, <laughs> this is the garnish. So they, is, they garnished my is, they garnished my dish with an entire plant of basil. Nice. Yeah, that's not a cheap garnish. No, that, that's, that, this that's is, probably this three dollars. Yeah, this is this is uh, at least a, at least a, a whole half a plant. Is that <laughs> aesthetic or functional? Were you supposed to do something with that with the meal? There were no just, instructions. If I were okay, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're you're okay. So even as we're garnishing with cherries here, you're not supposed to eat the garnish, right? That's what I've heard. Really? So, so there's a the, another food podcast, the the, the Sporkful, um, that uh, a, a while back Rachel Maddow was a guest, and Rachel Maddow mm-hmm. was a cocktail like fiend, <laughs> and um, and she, one of the things one of the uh, things that you, you're doing wrong was no. eating the garnish. You're not supposed to eat the garnish. That's weird. That's what that's what that's what, I, that's what she said. Didn't um, the garnish originally start as something to freshen your breath? I, I don't. Oh, know. that's interesting. Now, what I've heard though is certain drinks, especially citrus drinks, if you have the lime or the the uh, lemon on the side, if you want it more astringent, if you want it more tart, that is for you to doctor the cocktail. That's not eating no. the, the the garnish though. That that's so what she's saying is like the cherry and it should not be eaten. That's, that's part. wow. I don't know. Why would you spend twenty dollars on a maraschino, you know, Luxardo cherry oh, bottle yeah. to not eat it? That that's that's that was my thought when I was listening to it, when I heard that. And I don't know how true it is. 
Uh, I mean, that's I've never heard that. I've yeah. been bartending for a long time, and I've never heard that either. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, um, huh. but that was the one one of the uh, one of the points to take it away from. Maybe Rachel, Rachel Maddow doesn't know what the hell she's talking about when it comes to cocktails. Maybe I don't know. We'll see. Okay, Mickey. So let's t- let's start with prohibition because it seems like we're coming up on the hundred year anniversary of the ratification of prohibition. Is that right? Uh, in Michigan, yeah. So um, national prohibition started on January 16th, 1920, but Michigan got a little bit of a head start after a few, I would say, false starts on their prohibition. So on May 1st, 1918, Michigan went dry as a whole state. And there, as you kind of alluded to, there was a push almost like 50, 60 years prior to that. Oh, yeah. To, and so what brought about that kind of – desire to go dry dry that that quickly like that soon before everyone else yeah um it was um like you mentioned you know michigan the rest of michigan rural michigan had been trying to get uh, detroit to go dry for ever since detroit existed and we paid them absolutely no mind but um i think this time around it worked for a few different factors um one was the fact that we drank just an obscene amount we really did, as a country, drink a lot more before Prohibition per person. Um, yeah, I, I heard some of the stats, and I'm not going to remember the exact number, but it was astounding yeah. how much people drank because of how cheap yes. booze was, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, booze was cheap. Booze was plentiful. Booze was clean. You know, for the same reason that the Founding Fathers drank cider and beer all day, uh, people drank um, whiskey, a lot of whiskey, uh, before <clears> – <throat> excuse me. Um, before 1918, before Prohibition, the national average for an adult male, and that is for an adult over the age of 15, uh, was five gallons of whiskey a year, which is a lot. Five gallons? Five gallons of whiskey a year. <laughs> so yeah. that's 25 fifths. Yeah. So, and that's just the whiskey. And, you know. and you said over how old? 15? Two cases. 15. <laughs> yep. Adults. <laughs> yeah. Huh. I don't what, know how much the 14-year-olds are drinking now. Cause that's, so that's one fifth every two weeks? Yeah, that's not super. I don't that's know. Not that's not super bad. aggressive. Yeah. Now we're all... <laughs> don't don't, don't just Jason. We're not justifying as, as we sit here drinking Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's an average for a reason, right? So. Mm-hmm. so you know, we had the fact that we drank a lot. Um, you had the fact that alcohol and domestic violence was tied very strongly together. So in Michigan and in the rest of the country, really, uh, women's suffrage and prohibition really went hand in hand. Because women didn't go out to the bars like they do now. In fact, prohibition and the rise of the speakeasy really is responsible for women being in the public space of the bar. Before that, men went to saloons and women drank gin at home, basically. Um, So women figured that if they could get to the voting booth, then they would be able to vote the men out of the saloons, which is essentially what happened. National prohibition the 18th Amendment was only about eight months before the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. Uh, there was also another reason that um, um, prohibition really became a big deal is we're in the middle of World War I here, and people don't like the Germans. You know, they, they renamed sauerkraut Liberty Cabbage. And the Germans really? are the ones. Freedom oh, yeah. fries. Freedom fries. <laughs> Liberty yeah. cabbage? Liberty cabbages. Oh, shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, Did that come up when we were talking freedom fries? Because I feel I like know. you, because Freedom Fries sounded so obs- like obscure yeah. when that happened, whatever nineties or whenever that yeah. was, and to say to tie it to that would have been like, oh yeah, this is just what we do. 
Yeah, yeah, we rename things ridiculous names because we're xenophobes. Yeah, <laughs> that's how it works. Yeah, so the Germans are the ones making all the beer. So, you know, everyone thought, well, beer must be bad because Germans drink beer. And, you know, especially in Detroit and in Michigan, mm. there's this huge influx uh, of new immigrants from Eastern Europe, especially, and from Italy coming to build the cars and things. And, you know, we fear change. We fear new people. So, and they drink where they drink differently than we did and so there's also this uh to this point the the xenophobia point so this this amendment kind of masquerades xenophobia masquerading as religiosity right so there's Mm -hmm. this moral stance that people are taking like drinking is morally bad too yes and and i don't know if it was it's tied the same way that it is now but like if you're poor or different other mm-hmm. um you're you're also bad so like th- this is also like this moral stance against you know yeah everything yeah right like and it's weird that this is this is also an amendment a rare amendment that takes freedoms away this is true yeah um which is what the is it the only and very private freedoms i mean you know the way that the amendment worked there was sort of a, a loophole in that in the um in the 18th amendment the transportation manufacture sale and distribution of alcohol was illegal but it wasn't until later that they really started making the consumption of alcohol illegal uh so there was this little w- wiggle room but you know within a few years of prohibition going into effect um police were raiding private homes and this is you know they and didn't require warrants, and this was, you know, like you were saying, this is very much taking away the privacy of people in their own homes. When you say people houses were getting raided, were they getting raided and having the booze destroyed, or were they getting raided and also being arrested? They were arrested too, for sure. Yeah, really. Yeah, you were. If I remember correctly, it was okay to consume alcohol, but right. not purchase it. Sort of, yes. Okay. Um, it was it was a really gray area. In into the amendment, it was written. Or into the Volstead Act, which actually was what they used to enforce the amendment. Um, it was written that you could be prescribed up to a pint of whiskey every 10 days by a doctor. And that includes a dentist. And that was for anything. So you could drink it legally. Yeah. For, you know, for exhaustion and dropsy and, and, and pregnancy <laughs> pains and just whatever. Yeah. Is is that – so there, there's a beer um... – by founders, a Kentucky Breakfast Out, and mm-hmm. an early the early label of Kentucky Breakfast Out um, had a list of ailments that it cured. Yeah, is that something that a lot of alcohol did back then? Quite common. Yeah, okay. yeah, medicinal whiskey. You know, that became sort of a joke and an irony during Prohibition. And if you have the labels, so I have at least one bottle that was from Prohibition era that was like for medicinal purposes only. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's empty, but <laughs> darn it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um. This prohibition essentially started with like had this groundswell from like the, the there's a um, the anti saloon league right like this mm-hmm. okay um, and the the group called the Women's Christian Temperance Union and so how did it always intrigues me like how how does something like this take hold that's so drastically um, like hey we're gonna take this away from you like how does how are people like oh yeah let's let's go for it yeah well first a lot of people did not realize that beer and wine would be illegal too <laughs> that was like that was a very much a midnight hour thing that got rushed through the hearings oh. they were like what 
you know, fine, take away the whiskey, whatever. But now no beer, nothing over, I think it was a half a percent alcohol by volume. So, you know, wow. yeah. So it was sort of a little bit of backroom dealing that brought that through. So, so uh, wartime was, rations. You was know? this voted on? Yes. So, so people voted on this thinking that beer. No, 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 not like the public. The public didn't vote on this. Wasn't, yeah, they did. This was voted on the public. Yeah. Really? And that, that's what I'm. So the Michigan. Huh. I don't think so I knew in that. In Michigan, okay. they huh. voted in November of 1917, which hmm. is why sometimes you'll see it written that Michigan went dry in 1917. The vote was in November of 1917. Okay. And it went into effect um, on May 1st, 1918. That's an even bigger feat. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to convince, you know, so many congresspeople. But wow, to convince yeah. the bo- voting public. The general public. public. Wow. Even Detroit. Detroit voted dry. Wow. Yeah, by almost a two to one margin. It was pretty remarkable. Was there some type of lobbying? Ha- like, I don't know if it was called oh, lobbying yeah. back then. But what, So <laughs> what, what was happening on, oh. the, on like the, at the ground level? At the ground level. The so room. you have people like Carrie Nation. Um, who was a little bit earlier, but by 1918, she had sort of faded into the background. Um, but you have people like Billy Sunday, who is holding, you know, in 1917, he spent the better part of two months in Detroit, staying in SS Kresge's mansion um, and driving a cor- uh, Cadillac that was given to him. And he's holding massive rallies with 50,000 people. The collection plates for his rallies were two feet wide and 10 inches deep. I mean, these are just massive stage-crafted rallies and displays. Um, The Women's Christian Temperance Union is using um, the popularity of uh, the new popularity of photos in in newspapers. So they're dressing all in white and hosting marches down the street. They are lining up in front of saloon doors, kneeling in prayer, trying to beg the people going in and out of the saloons not to participate. So it's it's very much stage managed. You know, it's it's a it's a public display. And like the like the pop culture of the time, was there a lot of like uh plays or even the, the early t- it was yes. film at that early moments of film then, right? Were there a lot of like anti uh alcohol propaganda? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, dry dry songs are some of my favorite things to look into. I've got um I think I've got somewhere on my Facebook page um a banner from a song that was written around the turn of the century that said father was a drunkard and mother is dead. <laughs> wow. Words in music by and it's just like da 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 Walt Disney. Yeah, yeah. That kind of I mean the popular anything you can think of popular songs. I don't really know too much about movies. Um but yeah. Songs, the cartoons alone, the propaganda cartoons are just crazy to look at. I'm guessing with that with that level of propaganda, it's like you know you had the women's suffrage movement, but that speaks to me. And also that, that song that you just mentioned, that like the owner class or like the 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 industrial class, if the oh. the men were drunk and not being able to come to work, because you couldn't have something on the, of a campaign of that scale with all that stuff unless it seemed like the um you know the real stakeholders in society were also behind it as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Henry Ford was famously, famously uh, dry against alcohol for and economic for economic for reasons. Because yeah. you know it was it health was, too. He was like a crazy health weirdo too. Yeah, yeah, he wrote an entire book on soybeans. He was a weird man. <laughs> he did. Yeah, I didn't know that. Look up yeah. Fordlandia someday. Oh yeah, <laughs> crazy stuff. Yeah, uh, but Henry Ford for sure, um, and he backed it 100. percent Kresge from Kmart uh, donated a half a million dollars to the mm. Temperance campaign. So, yeah, these guys, they believed that 
you know, their workers' productivity would go up if they weren't drinking through their lunch breaks, which, you know, it was kind of true. But, uh, yeah. Everything in moderation. Yes. Except moderation. <laughs> Except moderation. If, if you follow that line of thinking through, like, how, how affected were, was the upper class, the rich, with drinking as well? Yeah. Well, interestingly, one of the weird provisions of the Volstead Act that was that you could consume the alcohol if it was already on your premises before prohibition went into effect. So places like the Manhattan Club in New York um, stockpiled. They had 14 years worth of booze. They, they managed to just shove everything in there and they saved enough to get them through. Um, the, the speakeasies that we think of now, you know, the cocktail culture, um, the high end fancy jazz clubs, those are strictly upper class things. You know, your average speakeasy was the back room of a grocery store or somebody's basement or someone's living room. You know, the working people did not go to, you know, the 21 club. The blind pigs? Is that where the blind pigs came in? Oh, so fun story about the origin of the phrase blind pig. Okay. So another one of those weird workarounds for drinking, and this was well before national prohibition. So this is around the 1870s, 80s, maybe 90s, back when, you know, when P.T. Barnum's getting a start and circuses are a thing and sideshows are a thing. So there used to be a rule, and there still is in some states, that you can't serve alcohol unless you also serve food, right? So this was one of those other things. You couldn't serve, you couldn't charge money for alcohol, but you could serve a free drink as a bonus or an incentive if someone came to your event. So you would have a blind pig or a blind tiger show where you had basically a blind animal on display <laughs> and people would pay wow. 50 cents to see the blind pig show and get a free glass of whiskey with it. And that's how the, that's what we figure how the term came about. Amazing. Yeah. That's great. And there was also at that same time, the lunch, follow that line of thinking, lunch specials, you could get a cup of soup yeah. or a bowl of soup and you get. And, and, and certain, uh, certain bars and restaurants and lunch counters were infamous for having the same dirty sandwich that got passed around. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever actually ate the sandwich. You just had to buy the sandwich. So, so, once prohibition gets ratified, how soon after does organized crime start to like take hold and like just, just run, run roughshod? Yeah, um, pretty quick, especially in Detroit. Um, in Michigan's first arrest for prohibition violation happened up in Flint um, about twelve hours after <laughs> after Michigan prohibition went into effect. A wow. couple of guys bootlegging um, Toledo. You could still drink in Ohio. So Dixie Highway became known as the Avenue de Booze and was just jam-packed at sunset every single night. It had also recently been paved. Um, so jam-packed every single night with people on trains and in cars just on their way to and from all the bars in Toledo. Um, so smuggling starts immediately. Um, and as far as organizing it, you know, we already had... We already had a few fairly solid uh, criminal families working already. There were a few Italians out by Eastern Market. Uh, there was the Purple Gang, which everyone has heard of around here, uh, working out of the Oakland Sugar House. Um, and they were originally, so in order to make moonshine, you need sugar. So they, they um, monopolized the sugar uh, distribution. 
in the city. And that's how they started. They also started um, this thing called the Cleaners and Dyers War. So they were basically mob enforcers. And any dry cleaner or clothing dyer in the city had to pay them exorbitant protection fees in order to maintain a business. That's just that's their racket. They decided they wanted to go after after dry cleaners. And if you didn't pay, your place got bombed. And there were a few rather infamous bombings. Greektown Monroe Street um, was a hotbed of obviously Greek uh, coffee shops, they were called. But there were a few bunch of shootouts and uh, quite a few bombings down in on Monroe Street. Now, it never was illegal in Canada, correct? It was. Well, it was. consumption wasn't. Ontario, okay. so the way Canada did it was really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's way too con- convoluted. It would take the whole podcast to talk about how their laws worked. Okay. Um, but for a little while, Windsor was dry. Detroit wasn't. And so, you know, everyone from Windsor would run over to Detroit. For a little while, Windsor was not dry. For a little while, Windsor couldn't consume, but could continue to export. Um, so you had this really dumb system of workarounds where, you know, people would order liquor in Detroit to be delivered in Windsor, but be able to pick it up on the boats. And somehow that was perfectly legal. So, yeah, it was a lot. There was a lot of back and forth. Were they facing the same societal pressures in Canada as they were? I think so. The- yeah. Um, it was, you know, especially with, you know, World War One really mm. did North America a lot of lot of hurt. And that that hurt people for a long time. So there was this, still this sort of anger um, against, you know, the Italians and the Germans. It was interesting. Now, um, did you ever go on the Canadian club tour in Windsor? So that I did. That is such yes. a shame when that closed. I know. I know. Um, got it. It's probably a year ago. It was a little over a yeah. year ago. It was in March or February. Yeah. yeah. And the craziness about that is, is they they take you downstairs to the little negotiation room mm-hmm. where they would negotiate with the mobsters and yes. say, you know, here's where they'd talk about the booze prices. Uh huh. And they'd be like, this one little hole in the wall. We're not entirely sure what it is, but we kind of think it's a bullet hole. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I, I haven't been able to prove that, but I'd like to think so. I do know that that Hiram Walker designed, or the Hiram Walker Company, mm-hmm. um, designed a specially flat-sided bottle called the Bootlegger's Bottle because it was easier to slip it into your clothes to smuggle it across the river. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so I'm looking at a bottle of George Dickel here. Literally right. a dusty bottle. A dusty bottle. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. The juice inside probably tastes good, but... Yeah. Well, Nick said he's making Manhattan, so I grabbed some rye that I had there. We uh, it says established eighteen seventy, mm-hmm. so they're obviously still in business. They're obviously still producing juice. Let's talk about the these businesses that function. Oh, we have early times here too. Nice, and that's eighteen sixty. Yeah. Um. So, what did these places do for the fifteen or so odd years that they shouldn't have been producing alcohol? Well, a few of them, and I don't know, I can't remember a bad prohibition historian, bad drink historian, exactly how many, but a few, including Old Forester, um, were able to continue to produce alcohol because you needed it for commercial properties, um, for industrial reasons, and also for medicinal purposes. So Old Forester, for example, um, continued to produce whiskey legally as medicinal whiskey. Um, some of them went underground. Some of the labels on the bottles that say since 1870 really mean it's, you know, somebody found a recipe from a distillery from 1860 or something like that. So it kind of depends. But yeah, um, quite a few continued to be able to do so legally. 
Uh, as far as beer goes, um, Stroh's, you know, of some went underground, some keep kept making beer. You could still make near beer. Um, and near beer saloons were a half-hearted attempt to keep that tradition going, but... Near, no near beer saloons like like Voss and stuff like like those like half percent yes. kind of like yeah fermented beverages like that it are tastes like beer and there's it's reading like the old bartenders manuals where they they give you suggestions of how to make near beer taste and feel more like beer you know shake it up so you get more foam that kind of stuff it's kind of fun and you could buy um, winemaking supplies yes yeah. So you could, uh, Stroh's actually, they, in addition to making ice cream during Prohibition, they also continued to make bakers and brewers yeast. Mm. So you could buy a home kit to basically brew your own beer. Um, and the wine, the wine concentrate companies were some of my favorites because you would get a, um, you would get a giant can of grape concentrate and on the label it would say, warning, do not leave in a cool, dark place for three weeks or this will ferment and turn into wine. Don't do that. Don't do that. Whatever you do. If you do this, if you follow this recipe, this will turn into wine. Don't. Don't. Yeah. That would be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. At one point, at one point, Michigan passed a law where grocers were supposed to find out from every one of their customers what they were using their fruit for. It was the, called the grocer's law. Wait, fruit, fruit. Fruit. Like fresh fruit. Yes. I'm going to the store to buy grapes and I have to sign an affidavit that says I'm not going to turn this into wine. And they're supposed to be able to smell on you whether you're turning it into alcohol. If you buy like Sudafed now at CVS, you have to sign the the, yeah. Uh, yeah. the pad saying you're not going to make math. I have to go to like yeah. six places to get enough Sudafed for my cold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Be- because if you buy more than like one package of it, they think you're making no, math you in st- your you got, they gotta like You got to scan your ID. I know. Just like yeah. when I, I actually sold metal this uh, last weekend. To like a metal dealer, and they scanned my ID. Wow! Because they thought I was stealing it out of a house. scrapper. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah. So okay, so l- let's talk about the Barkeology Project. So this this kind of like endeavor to ten bar at all of the um, Detroit bars that have been open during Prohibition, since Prohibition, however you, however you claim, yeah, um, however you want to make that distinction. Um, first of all, how is it going? It's going well. I have one left. That's Andrews on the corner. Tom, would you please call me back? <laughs> when did this start? Uh, I started it maybe a little bit less than two years ago, and I have okay. to admit, you know, and I got I got the first five or so knocked right out of the way. Well, I had already worked at three of the first five, which is what made me decide, oh, hey, <laughs> maybe I should see how many more there are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it really, the project took me realistically a little over a year and i just still haven't done andrews yet yeah but they have a big hundred year anniversary themselves this spring so hoping to let me sneak behind the bar tom (laughs) yeah (laughs) so these places so what was the you said you worked at three of them so those are probably the first three that you kind Mm -hmm. of checked off the list what were those first three uh two-way in tommy's and abix bar Mm -hmm. two-way is uh in Northtown which is on the northeast side at Mount Elliott in Nevada. Okay. Um, which was a former basically stagecoach stop uh, and was a dentist's office during Prohibition. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty darn sure if you have a dentist's office that used to be a bar, <laughs> you're prescribing alcohol <laughs> in there. Uh, Abix was a family bar, and um, we recently, just a couple years ago, um, the owners and some friends... Uh, we're doing some plumbing work and they were in the crawl space 
underneath the men's bathroom and found two barrels of whiskey <gasps> in the basement. One of them still has booze in it. There's wow. no getting it out. There's absolutely no getting it out because it's, you know, it's the crawl space is maybe 18 inches high. But you could pump it out or do something with right? it. Right. And the, um, actually, Don Livermore, who is the um, head distiller uh, at Hiram Walker, mm-hmm. has offered to come over with his equipment and yeah. test it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, it's, again, getting it out of there is just going to be a total nightmare. Yeah. Uh, and then Tommy's is, uh, it's a sports bar over by Joe Lewis Arena that was actually, Wayne State did an archaeological dig in, I think, 2012, maybe, um, for about six or eight weeks. Um, and they found um, a tunnel and a secret stairway and uh, what used to be in the basement, which is now just like a jumbled pile of old broken popcorn machines and, and plastic tubs, uh, but what used to be a mahogany-lined private room for the purple gang neat yeah yeah and so when you worked at these three places were you did you have the not like were you knowledgeable about what we, where you were working yeah you were okay yeah <laughs> that was so, i so, mean that was part of how i ended up working there for for after i finished grad school and i moved back to detroit um i was the tour director for the detroit bus company and i started a prohibition tour um, so that's sort of how I got interested in this. And of course, prohibition bar crawl, um, people generally tend to love. So I had our, that's how I started learning about this stuff. And then I realized I got to a certain point in my research that I realized everything I was looking up, I had already found and written. So I have to start writing some of this stuff down, which is how I started writing the book and how I started doing the, the speakeasy challenge and the, the website. So the the book is what is there a title is there a working title? Working title is City on a Still Detroit During Prohibition. And, and that's still in uh production you're still yeah. right. Okay. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so though so you have those three so the ne- the fourth that you uh it doesn't depend. I, I sort of lose order yeah. after that point but Jacoby's uh okay. Nancy Whiskey. Who else do we have? Tom's Tavern. Actually, ended up loving that place so much. I ended up doing a regular like Thursday night gig there for a while. Um, Stonehouse. I didn't actually work at Stonehouse, but they seemed to be closed. Last I heard. Uh-huh. Who else am I missing? Somebody's going to be mad at me. So do you know? It, so uh, yeah, Jacoby's as like what are some fun facts about Jacoby's that you learned while do you? Did you learn anything while you were working at these places? Sometimes yes, sometimes okay. no. Okay. Um, it, it was kind of nice in that that a few of the times that I did the the bartending gig, I was actually so busy that I didn't have time to you know find out anything from the owners or anything. Do just do nothing but you know make money and serve drinks. So that was kind of cool. Um, Jacoby's, you know, th- for the longest time they had a liquor license from 1917 hanging on the wall. If you come inside the front door, it's opposite the bar. Um, and it was a liquor license from 1917, which they claimed was the oldest in the city, but you can't really verify that. And, you know, considering we didn't have liquor licenses from 1918 to 1923, but it said it was good until July of 1917. For the longest time, I couldn't figure out why, because we went, didn't go dry until 1918, but there was a national, um, Whatever the 1917 version of the Food and Drug Administration was, um, law that basically said you can't produce whiskey after this date because we need it for, you know, we need the alcohol and mm. we need the, the 
the tools and all that stuff to make war stuff. So, yeah. So that I finally figured out. It's not there anymore. I don't know where they put it. But, yeah. Now, have you ever looked at going outside of Metro Detroit? Because there was a, a this post that was circulating. I don't know if it's old or new. But talked about, is it Nellie's in Niles? Mm. There's like the oldest bar in Michigan is in Niles. Oh, boy. And uh, Just like the oldest bar in Detroit. That one, those are tough to, right, you know, right, right, right. how do you define well, are sure these bars, like, are, is it the same owners, or like they've changed hands over time, or are they still the same family? Almost all of them, with the exception, so far as I can tell, with the exception of Abix, um, which is still owned by the, boy, I think Eric is now the great-grandson, or no, the great-great-grandson of, of the couple that first opened it, hmm. um, and his whole family has owned and lived in that building all their lives. Pretty much all the rest of them have changed hands. Okay. You know, the two-way family has owned that bar for 40 years, which is impressive, but yeah. Mm. Um, I have gone to a few outside of Detroit proper, but, you know, that's a rabbit hole that, you know, could take me another couple of years. Right. Um, Frank's Eastside Tavern is is in the basement of an old farmhouse. Where's and that? Sterling Heights, I think. I think it's in Sterling Heights. In some, no, my, the, it may be St. Clair Shores. Someone's basement? Yeah. It's in the basement of a farmhouse because that's, that's what a real working class speakeasy would have been, like I said. You know, it's not a high-end Cliff Bells kind of a joint. No, but, but I, I think the kind of ingenuity of that, like someone's basement, like saying like, you know what? I'm going to take a risk mm-hmm. and invite people into my house because that's essentially what you're doing. I do it like every day. Yeah. <laughs> not now it's not illegal now i mean you know to sell it might be. to sell it might be. yeah <laughs> but so these people were also really willing to take the risk of having yeah. people at their house and i so- mean it wasn't that much of a risk honestly um certainly people did get arrested but um in nationally there were only 1500 prohibition agents um to enforce, and easily half of those were corrupt. I mean, a third of the force, a third of the force was fired within six months of prohibition starting because it's just too easy to be on the take. You know, they made an average, oh, I don't know, I think it was like $3,000 salary per year, um, which comes out to be about 45 now. And you could make $800 in a day just for not being at your post mm. when someone asked you to not be at your post. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, Hamtramck especially, during Prohibition, Hamtramck sent two mayors to jail. Um, One of them came back and was reelected mayor after he got back. And, uh, yeah, and, like, they went through police forces. It was just notoriously corrupt. At at what point, I mean, it's lasted 15 years. At what point did did we recognize that this was a failure? (laughs) I mean, and, and, you know, like, we can even compare it to, like, the war on drugs now it's like uh-huh. this is this is, this a, is not a, working no yeah. so at what point did someone say listen guys like we need to like pack it up and just let people drink yeah i mean people were saying it pretty much all along but i would say the great depression really was was the breaking point at which nationally people just said this is dumb you know warren harding drank openly in in the early years of prohibition drank openly in the in the white house this was how how ridiculous everyone thought it was from the beginning but it was always just one of those you know it's it's an amendment to the constitution 
So it takes a lot of work to repeal an amendment to the Constitution. In fact, it's the only constitutional amendment that's ever been repealed. So yeah, and, and so the, that's the twenty first amendment, right? And yeah, that's and repealed. It, it literally just says like the eighteenth, like one. Of, it's like the <laughs> Never eight, mind. you know the eighteenth <laughs> amendment. Like eh, you know, fuck that amendment. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They're like that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What well, happened was <laughs> yeah. What the hell were we thinking? Sorry. Carry on. Now, yeah. can you talk a little bit about uh, the bartenders that left um, America and like went overseas to go do all like the other stuff over there? Because we had like uh, all this great talent. Yeah. And like it just like stopped and people were like, we got to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Some of, some of the more talented and more famous uh, bartenders would go. Well, you know, they would go not even necessarily overseas, but Cuba, Mm -hmm. certainly, because it's 90 miles away and you can totally drink there. Um, They would go to Mexico. All of a sudden, the Mexican resorts start popping up. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Joe's favorite places. So (laughs) not so much Canada, because, again, Canadian laws were a little bit weird. And and also Canadian resorts. Like, who wants to go to Canada? Yeah. You know, nothing against Canada, but come on. We love Canada. But yeah. yeah. Careful. Sunny beachside resorts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That makes sense in Mexico. Think of how many our our listeners are from Windsor. That's true. I'm sorry. Sorry, Windsor. (laughs) Here is something that's not at all related to, to the bartenders leaving, but Windsor. So in, I think it was 1924. Uh, the the farm areas in uh, Ontario around Sandwich and Malden and all of that suffered a great rutabaga shortage. Yes, because it was more profitable for the farmers to lease over their land to the rum runners than it was to grow crops. <laughs> so, yeah, the great rutabaga shortage of 1924 oh, was man. because, you know, why grow crops when... You can just sit back and take the money. Sorry, Canada. Yeah. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we uh we took your rutabagas away. Yeah. We're so sorry about that. Darn. So th- this kind of stems out of like the, the way the world looks at us now, given given our current political climate. But what did the world think of us when the prohibition kind of took hold? Oh, they thought we were so stupid. <laughs> I mean, who does this, right? You know, we're supposed to be the land of the free, the, you know, the, the bastion of civil liberties and individual liberties. And, you know, England in particular just was looking at us, you know, scathing political cartoons because we've also got this puritanical mentality that has always been there with us. So, yeah, I mean, they made a lot of money off of us, though, because like Nick said, everyone traveled overseas, the wealthy, if you could afford it. You know, you went on cruise ships that docked 12 miles out Drop because <laughs> that was the originally it was one mile, um, but that was way too easy. Uh, but 12 miles out to sea was international law. So cruise ships would leave and just go hang out for the night 12 miles offshore. Didn't England also, though, suffer? Uh, I mean, didn't, wasn't the gin craze about uh, intoxication, yeah. mass intoxication over there? So it seemed like they were still struggling with the same yeah, pressures. I mean, uh, but they didn't go prohibition. They didn't. Um, they taxed, they went Dickensian. <laughs> yeah, you know they had they had their super liberal Victorian novelists advocating for reform. You know, for 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 actual societal reform and helping people who were alcoholic. There was a lot more sympathy in England for uh, people with alcoholism. I think. 
I wonder if we had any better relations with the countries that were kind of historically dry, like maybe some of the Muslim countries or something like that. That's something I've never looked into. It's not really anything I've considered either. Yeah, until like literally just a second. I'm just like, hmm, I wonder if that helped with anything. Well, wasn't right around this time the whole Ottoman Empire thing falling yeah, Ottoman apart? Ottoman Empire was pretty big. That was uh, after World War One. Yeah. So maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly can't say it's something I've thought about until now either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nick's always pressing the pressing the boundaries. Here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> expanding the, expanding the consciousness. Next Ooh, question. Yeah. I don't know. Next question. <laughs> That's a good risk term right there. <laughs> um, I I do, and I want to kind of go down that path. Like you're, you're comparing Muslim countries to. Some, some. I mean, some do drink. Uh, But but like, you know, like there is this kind of – because we very much now are like, you know, Muslim countries are bad. Mm -hmm. But there's this religious streak that we have that can't compare to being Muslim because, you know, Muslim countries are bad. But why do you think there's that kind of parallel? Well, I mean, you look at like prohibition. Prohibition was a lot of religion that Mm -hmm. was kind of pushing that. So I'm wondering if there was like bridges that were made because they're like saying, oh, they are trying to go back to some of their religious roots and embracing that alcohol is this devil. You know, maybe we can make these ties again. Just just a theory. Um, I don't know if that draws any similar um, like current ties. I I mean, we were pretty isolationist back then. weren't True. That's that's very true because that kind of stopped us from getting in World War Two, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Because of that. Yeah. So. But I, I mean, I will say that, you know, prohibition was very much a Christian and a very much a Protestant thing. Mm-hmm. And it was it was fear of Catholics because, you know, we Catholics drink a lot um, and, and we're new foreigners coming in here. So, yeah. JFK just ruined everything. Yep. The Ku Klux Klan loved prohibition. Is that does that um, related to I mean, there are counties or areas in the south that are dry. Mm-hmm. Today, yeah. still, yeah. is that a byproduct or uh, of the of the prohibition era? Did that come later on, or no? I think that's a, that's a really good point. Is that you know because each state could choose, right? Yes, each state could choose. Um, I think the last one to allow it back might have been Georgia. It's a strange one. So even after yeah. the because the amendments are constitutional amendments, mm-hmm. the 18th and the 21st, Michigan yeah. had already. Uh, decided earlier to uh, you know enact prohibition prior to national prohibition, right? So, but Michigan also ended it at the same time as when the Twenty First Amendment came out. Yeah, we were the first ones to ratify. Okay, yeah, basically the Eighteenth and the Twenty First Amendments said, you know, the Eighteenth Amendment said prohibition is a national thing. By that time, I think thirty some states had already been dry. Um. And then the 21st said it's up to the states to figure out whether they want alcohol and how it's run, which is why you can be in a control state or a state licensed state. That's why it, it depends state to state how you buy your booze from a state liquor store, um, from the party store, You know when you're allowed to buy it, when you're allowed to drink it. I lived in Connecticut for three years and they repealed the blue laws, which is um, the blue laws are the drinking, non-drinking laws. Um, the year that I left. But while I was there, you couldn't drink on Sundays. You couldn't buy anything to drink after 9 p.m. Hmm. So. On Sundays or any day? Any day. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Ooh. 
You want a beer at 9.15? Too bad. I mean, you could get it at a bar, but you couldn't go to a store and buy it. I mean, I remember being in college when, you know, you'd go to the grocery store and they'd have the cages yeah. on Sunday. Yep. Like and Saturday they, at midnight, like chugga, 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 chugga. They done. had that until 2013 yeah. in Connecticut. Yeah. Yep. Some ass backwards ass people up there. In right. Connecticut. I tell ya. Well, but even Protestants. Michigan. Protestants. Yeah. I was going to say even Michigan. <laughs> I remember States. that. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's been fairly recent since we were able to buy on Sundays, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Four or five years? I think Indiana, where my dad lives, Indianapolis, I think it's still... Is that, I think there's a Sunday thing there. Yeah. I think uh, Indiana may have just changed theirs, but okay. they had blue laws. Like, they in Connecticut were back, were the only two left. And I think they might have just changed it, but I may be wrong. He's been there for 15 years, so I haven't been there in the last few years, but I do remember something about Sundays being off limits as well. Is your father? Yeah. You haven't visited him in two years? Well, you know, since, we, <laughs> since my nephews have been born, <laughs> he comes up here every chance he gets. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting a little wow. deep there, let's, Nick. Let's Dude, pause shit. this for a, for a guilt trip. <laughs> um, speaking of that, there's a, a book, and I can't remember who wrote it. Um, it's like a field guide to drinking, and they talk a lot about um, the different states and like which laws are different yeah. and what's cool and stuff. And uh, I remember when that came out; that was a neat little book. Mm-hmm. There, there's a, uh, a bar I visited in New Orleans um, a few years back. That's uh, Blacksmith Lafitte, mm-hmm. uh, and Jean that, the, Lafitte's blacksmith Lafitte. shop. Yeah, yeah, and that's known as the. It's the oldest bar in the country, right? That's another one of those. There's a lot of oldest bar in the countries. Okay, um, Jean Lafitte's actually. I mean, that building has been there since the late 1700s, uh, but it hasn't always been a bar. And uh, the building itself also got moved back in like the 50s. Mm. So yeah. It's just one of those, you know, how do you define oldest bar? Is it oldest has never stopped operating as a bar? Then that may be, you know, uh, some of the old restaurants in Boston, you know, the old Oyster House in Boston, that kind of thing. So, yeah. I I think that one of the funny things about these kind of historical landmarks, like especially like this one in New Orleans as an example, they have these incredible like it's like this incredible history and then there's like a corona sign uh-huh. oh yeah <laughs> you know like dr- drink jack daniels and it's like th- this kind of like it's con- crazy yeah, yeah and they've like jean lafitte's um has those spring break slushy machines behind yes. the bar and actually well last time i was there in uh, july um their bartenders from adrian michigan so oh. yeah yeah but uh yeah, I mean, they've got the slushy machine. <laughs> but they're also playing up like the low electricity thing. Like there's like faux candles everywhere mm-hmm. and it's like over the top dark yes. in that bar. Yes, it is. Like, but you can get a hurricane. Apparently. Of course you can. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess as you've worked through these, um, this archaeology project and these bars that you're, how much has like, what what has changed in terms of the offerings? Like, Are, are there... Is it all like Corona and Miller Lite? And, like, do you go down that path or is it a craft cocktail path? Like, how is it? I think it depends. Um, honestly, no, come, come to think of it, not a single one of our surviving speakeasy bars is a craft cocktail place. Just because by very the very nature of surviving the last 85 years, um, you know, craft cocktails weren't a thing in Michigan 10 years ago. So it would not have been a craft cocktail bar. So they have, you know, the thing that I would say I see in common with all the former speakeasies is that they they are a neighborhood bar. They are an anchor to the community uh, and they've got regulars that are, you know, grandpa's age. So 
you know. Are, are these places that are open at 7 a.m. and stay open until 2 a.m.? Like Some this? of them. Yeah. Abix is. Uh, Painted Lady opens. That's another one I forgot to mention. Painted Lady and Hamtramck. Um, they open at 4 p.m. and stay open until, you know, whenever. Yeah. <laughs> two. Always two. Yeah. And that's a prohibition bar as well? Yeah. Oh, cool. That's one of the oldest buildings in Hamtramck. It's a, it's a, uh, the owner has a, uh, some sort of home inspection report from 1911. And all it says about the building is very old. Like in, 19, in 1911, <laughs> they couldn't figure out how old the building was. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually where I ran into you last time. At, um, yeah. Apparently, I just didn't realize it was quite that old. Oh, yeah. Very old. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, yeah. it's pink and green, yeah. but it's also a high Victorian house. So, hmm. yeah. There was, there was a house where back when, you know, Hamtramck was farms. So. You, you mentioned with the, you know, the Purple Gang, the, the Oakland Sugar House. So we have the Oakland yeah. and Ferndale. We have the Sugar House mm-hmm. in Detroit. Um, and so these places are kind of a call back to the, these, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, to these cocktails that were made, craft made and all these, like handmade, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that came up particularly back in Prohibition? Like during this time where these high-end bars like – were these bartenders really performing the way they do now? Well, I mean, I'm sure that both Nick and Jason can speak to this as well as I can. But one of the reasons that cocktail culture became a thing was because the booze was so bad. So, you know, our sugar, you know, Manhattan's predate prohibition. Um, but, you know, you had to doctor it up to make it taste OK uh, because the booze was you know, in, in the best case scenario, yeah. yeah, best case scenario. Making people go blind? Yeah, yeah. 10,000 people, the federal government intentionally poisoned 10,000 people. By they seized, um, they seized alcohol, poisoned it, and sent it out, thinking that this would be a disincentive to drink illegal booze. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So that was... That did not go well. That was um, like industrial alcohol that didn't have a... Um, like a negative flavoring in it. It was just straight up alcohol, right? It depended. Okay. Um, and and I I can't quite remember exactly which kind of you know ethanol mm-hmm. it was. Um, but yeah, it was you know denatured industrialized alcohol, and they just you know yeah took you won't the drink shit, it if you can die. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, that works. Yum. Yeah. Um, but yeah, wow. like you know the cocktails, the cocktail culture that we think of now existed before prohibition. Certainly, you know David Wandrich and Imbibe. You know cocktails have been around for quite some time. We've always wanted to mix our booze with something, especially if it's bad booze. Um, but a lot of the the focus recently on cocktails is on prohibition era stuff because you know speakeasies are sexy. Now, have we talked about the party at all? No, let's talk about the party. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like one so, of the big reasons why we wanted you to come. Oh, yeah. All right. So I, I think as I mentioned at the very, very beginning, um, on May 1st, 1918, Michigan went dry as a state. So on the in the week before, so that was, I believe, a Tuesday. And uh, the Saturday before was pretty much the last night for most of the bars. Also because they had... They had only bought so much booze and a lot of them, you know, by nine o'clock on that Saturday night, I think 
10 of the 13 bars on Monroe Street had shut down because they ran out of booze. So Detroit threw its real that. big last bang party uh, in 1918 uh, at the end of April. So in order to recreate that, um, uh, we are having another one and a <laughs> funeral for John Barleycorn, which is a synonym for booze, uh, at Detroit City Distillery on April 28th. And what will that party, what's it going to entail? <laughs> well, it's going to entail, um, we're going to have morning armbands, you know, as in M-O-U-R-N, morning armbands for, for John Barleycorn. Uh, and just like they did 100 years ago in Detroit at several different places, we're going to have an elegy for John Barleycorn. We're going to play him a, a, a funeral song. Um, I am trying desperately to convince my friend, who seems pretty game, uh, to make an appearance as Carrie Nation. <clears throat> Cool. Because she is a six foot tall, broad shouldered woman who owns an axe. So, you know, wow. why not? <laughs> um, if you have one of those friends and you're a Prohibition historian, <laughs> you'd be a fool not to use it. Um, so, yeah. And then at midnight, we're going to roll out a special Prohibition drink that's that's only available after the doors close and, and it's illegal. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's going to be fun. That sounds awesome. I'll be there. Okay. <laughs> so uh, again, when when is that? What's the date? Uh, that's Saturday, April twenty eighth at Detroit City Distillery in Eastern Market, from eight p.m. to one a.m. We will also be at the Warren uh, Beer Festival too. I think aren't we? Didn't we sign on to uh, do a live podcast there too? That day? Yeah, I don't know. So we'll have to. We'll be back to back drinking that day. <laughs> yeah, there's worse things. Yeah. yeah, I know. It'll be rough. <laughs> rough life. We'll try to. We'll try to manage. <laughs> uh, Mickey, so where can people find you online? Uh, you can find ProhibitionDetroit.com is the website, and also at, on Facebook as Prohibition Detroit, and on Twitter as, I think it's Prohibit Detroit, but if you look up pretty much Prohibition Detroit, that's that's where you can find me. Now, you're working on your the one book, yes. and but you said you a second book kind of came out of... Second book, which was... <laughs> preceded by the first book. So I've been working on, on it's an academic study of Detroit during Prohibition. Uh-huh. So it is, you know, extensively researched and footnoted and takes a very long time. In the meantime, um, an editor at the History Press had been reading my blog and reached out to me and said, hey, we'd like you to write a book for the History Press. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am writing uh, or wrote uh, Wicked Detroit, uh, which they would not allow me to subtitle the shitheels and charlatans that made Detroit. <laughs> but it's just wicked Detroit. Um, and that'll be out this looks like late summer. I've already submitted it where, you know, it's just got to be printed and all that fun stuff. So th- this is a focus on shitheels and charlatans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so we start with Cadillac uh-huh. <laughs> and we go, we all, we go all the way up to Charles Bowles, who was the only one of the 10 biographies in the book that I did that I could find no human connection to. Hmm. Charles Bowles was Detroit's mayor briefly for about nine months during Prohibition. He was elected and backed by the KKK. He turned the city into an absolute den of vice and theft and graft, and he was just a nasty, horrible, awful human being. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's reason enough to to get that book right. <laughs> so you will be at the event at uh, Detroit City Distillery, obviously, yes. so people can meet you there if they'd yes. like, um, and talk more prohibition history with you. Yes, we'll also be having um, 
there'll be food pop-up and the Peacock Room is uh, is also doing a, a fashion pop-up. So people can buy fascinators and jewelry and, and probe at flapper stuff. All Peacock of this Room at the event. Awesome. Yeah. All of this at the event. Yep. One more time. What day is it? It is Saturday, April 28th from 8 p.m. to 1 a.m. Awesome. And they can find the event page on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mickey, thanks for being with us. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. Uh, until next time, dine well, friends.